there's a lot of bad stats. There was a chart that came out on TikTok and it showed from the 90s the cost of rent going skyrocketing, right? And then they had the cost of real income, which was like flat. But the issue is that real income is adjusted for inflation. And guess what goes into inflation? The cost of rent. So you're looking at a cost of rent that was not adjusted for inflation. Yeah, <laughs> then you're looking yeah. at your real income, which is already adjusted for inflation, which is affected by the rent that's right, actually yeah. going up. And so when you actually adjusted both of them to a like for like, rents actually came down. Welcome back, back to Young Money Mindset, hosted by Luke Carichia and Robbie Holdcross. From, from the ground up, where we talk about mindset, real estate, the hustle, and everything to help you achieve your dreams. Yeah, thank you guys. We got Tina Tambor on. We're super excited to have her on uh, Young Money Mindset. So yeah. appreciate you coming in, Tina. Um, yeah, so let's jump right into it. I know we discussed a bit about, um, you know, some of the things Gen Z and millennials are facing right now, especially when it comes to purchasing a home. And I know a lot of them are renters, or at least a lot of the ones that, that I've spoke with. So what are what's some good news that we can give, you know, our friends, our generation that are renters right now, mm-hmm. when it comes to purchasing a home? I know their parents, right, or their grandparents, they lived through four recessions. So yes. There's there's a lot I'm sure we can unpack with that. But oh sure. Let's uh, let's start there and just kind of dive into what are some what are some good talking points or what's some good data that they can be aware of. I think for the most part, um, there is no timing of the market. I mean, I think we should just get away from hey, I'm looking for the perfect time to get in. The perfect time is when you have enough saved up and you can afford it. Yeah. I mean, with the existing rates, the only rate that matters is the rate we have. You know, not where it's going to be. Not trying to get the ultimate perfect setting. And and it's really communicating that, right, to them because I, I tell a lot of folks like, hey, the best time to purchase a home is, you know, depending on your situation, if you're able to afford it, mm-hmm. then, you know, let's go ahead and talk about, you know, purchasing as a property. As soon as that opportunity is available, right? And I think, I, I know I sometimes have a hard time uh, relaying that message to people. People are wanting to wait until the rates are better. They're wanting to wait until there's more mm-hmm. inventory. They're wanting to wait until they can save 5% instead of uh, instead of a 3.5% dominant, little things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I think, you know, a, a big goal of mine for today was try to, try to help my renters understand that the best time to buy is the first time that that availability comes to you. So how yeah. how can we as agents help our renters understand that? Well, the, it's it's hard frankly. I mean, they have to be in the right mindset to do it. If they're not ready, like where they're busting out at the seams of an apartment complex or um, or they lost another roommate or if they're in a, pl- a position, once they're in the position and they're ready and they can do it, then it's getting them over the hump of whatever their maybe insecurity is. And from what I understand, talking to agents like yourselves, um, there are two fears. The first fear is that um, they're going to buy their home and it's immediately going to devalue. Yep. I hear that one a lot. Yeah. Um, And that's where that type of unknown is where we just lean into the math. You have to lean into the math and you have to trust it because it's been very good to us for a good 23 years now where the math tells us that your prices are going to be sustained. Right. Okay. That we're not seeing any kind of price declines in the near future. However, 
That is also a conversation to be had about um, long-term holds versus short-terms. If you're concerned about what your home's going to be worth in a year, then you probably shouldn't be buying. You're not going to be selling it in a year. Typically, the the most secure investment for homes is if you plan on being there for at least three to five years. Okay. And statistically, is that right? I've heard five to seven. I know a lot of agents throw out numbers. Is that statistically like how long folks hold homes is anywhere between five and seven years? No. Uh, it's three to five years three to five. at okay. least. Um, five to seven, ideal, of course. However, the longer you hold it, the, the less risk you have. But three, three to five years is essentially if we have a big run-up in price and then a drop-off in price and then recovery in price. You're going to ride it out. Well, and I, you know, we, we convey to our clients, like the biggest thing is as long as you can afford that monthly payment, because it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you purchase a home, the the market goes down, your house maybe is worth a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but you're going to continuously make that mortgage payment. And it's not necessarily like, but I think with Zillow, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this is has Zillow maybe, or or some of these, like these software programs, like Mm -hmm. made it more accessible where people are constantly checking their estimate. Because I would imagine prior to that, maybe, you know, even early internet days, um, Mm -hmm. that wasn't as accessible, right? I'm sure you'd have to reach out to an agent, you'd have to talk to your neighbor, but I feel like everyone now is just like checking the estimate, at least on their properties. I think you should be taking your estimate with a grain of salt. Um, Let's just not to bag on Zillow, but for a while there, Zillow was, if you remember, buying and selling homes. And they were short-term holds, which is the riskiest hold you can do. And they were using their estimates for their purchase prices. And they lost $250 million by doing that because they often overestimated or severely underestimated, but mostly overestimated yeah. <laughs> prices. And so they're like, we don't need appraisals. That's for poor people. Yeah, and so just, <laughs> we've got our estimate. It's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, that 10%, even they rank their own estimates as being within 10% of the actual, that's a lot of money. I'm sorry. If you're 10% overvalued or even undervalued, that's a significant amount of money to be. Have you heard with. of the new warranty programs out that cover the possible depreciation on a home? I got a phone call the other day of a guy trying to pitch me on it, uh, and I had never heard of it before. He said it's the first of their kind, but essentially it was an insurance policy insuring against the depreciation uh, of your property. I thought it was. It, I think it's a crazy. So trying here's to sell, the issue: but. is that home values do not fluctuate like the stock market. Right. Okay. So the fact is that. Even this estimate, which can go up and down, it's just not our. It's not rational, frankly. They're they're using comparables, and if you don't have enough comparables, then it's going to make your valuations very erratic. Um, but the reality is that home's value does not fluctuate widely enough. Yeah. To... Well, the craziest part about it too is their their first trigger doesn't start until ten percent. So they're mm. they're. Playing wow. off of clients that are... That's you, so rare. You're banking on a 10% decrease in a year. I mean, it's to me, it's a crazy sale. I don't, I, I don't see yeah, it. Yeah, and, and that's only... Here's the thing. That is only experienced by people who are owning their homes for less than a year. So if you've owned your home, even when we dropped 15% in 2022, okay... Most of that loss was experienced by Open Door, which was a short-term hold. They lost a billion dollars. Okay, most homeowners didn't lose anything. 
Yeah. Not one dollar. Right. Well, and a lot of them have low interest rates too, and that's that's yeah. something that I wanted to talk to you about too, because it's like, you know, like for example, myself, like I bought a house at a good interest rate, mm-hmm. and I have a hard time selling it. I know there's a lot of people that have equity trapped in the house, mm-hmm. and it's maybe not the best. You know, they don't want to be there that long. But you're you have a lot of people nowadays that just have these great rates that unfortunately mm-hmm. are just kind of trapped by their interest rates. So do you think that mm-hmm. plays? And I, and from my understanding, this is the lowest we've ever seen interest rates, right? Yeah. We've never seen these types of rates before. And, and frankly, I hate the word trapped. They, yeah. I mean, Frank, we've talked about this. They're not trapped. They're making a choice. You know, if they had no choice and they had to give up their rate and they had to go get another up, you know, higher rate, then I guess that's sad. <laughs> but it's not really sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're you're looking at homeowners that are like, oh, this is terrible. I have four percent and my home is appreciated by nine. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. you're. I'm having a hard time having sympathy for somebody who simply is thinking, oh, I'll just stay here for a while and accumulate equity. And, um, you know, maybe do some improvements to my home, things like that. It's They're not trapped. They're making a choice. And that choice was facilitated by the fact that they were able to take advantage of a low rate, which was, frankly, historically, very low. And you didn't know. And that's why we're not really blaming. Don't blame yourselves if you're Gen Z and you're, or you're millennial and you didn't take advantage of a 3% or you just weren't in a position to do that. That was historically low. Nobody knew other than people who had had higher rates, that that was an excellent rate. You know what I'm saying? We had 3% rates for a number, like two or three years, and then they were gone. And um, so many people were able to take advantage of that. But let's just talk about my own personal situation. In my 20s, rates were 9%. And I remember thinking to myself, how does anybody afford a house? (laughs) (laughs) I'm never going to afford a house. I'm never going to get there. But the fact is that you do eventually. Um, it's very difficult for you to realize what your own potential is or where you're going until you get there. Um, it used to be in my back in my day, <laughs> we got married. You know, when you get married, it's easier to, to qualify on a dual income. In fact, all of the affordability indexes for housing are based off of family income and not household, meaning that two related people by blood or marriage in a household qualifying for mortgages. And the reason we do that is that people who are buying homes are generally farther along in their careers. They're farther along in their, you know, uh, personal lives, if you will, and they're more accumulated in their assets. So that's generally the homeowner. So in your 20s, it's unusual, frankly. Yeah, and don't beat yourself up, too. If you're out there, Gen Z, millennial, like, seriously, don't beat yourself up if you're not like, man, I don't, you know, I don't own a house just yet. Like, I think that is so awesome for someone to like yourself, Tina, to mention that because I I talk to people, too, that just they feel left behind, right? Or like they see their friends buying and they see their friends getting married and buying houses. And it's like... Mm -hmm you know, everyone's on that, their own horizon, right? And it could be later on. And that's kind of segues us into household formation. And I think um, the average person right now purchasing a home, I don't know if you have any data off the top of your head on that, but I would imagine that's increased over the last few years. Like it hasn't been necessarily the, you know, 20, 25 year old person purchasing a home. It's really probably been, because I think people now are having to move in together and mm-hmm. maybe purchasing, you know, getting a roommate, or even if they are purchasing. I had a buddy, for example, that, you know, he, yeah, him and two other buddies got qualified and purchased a home. And, you know, 
they were asking like my opinion on it. And I'm like, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I just, I don't know how that works out too, because it's like, I don't know if I would want to get married to two other people on (laughs) a mortgage, right? Like there could could be some, some issues there too. Yeah. There does seem to be a little more willingness to commit to somebody on a 30 year mortgage and not a 30 year marriage. (laughs) I'm like, you know, the mortgage kind of follows you more so, (laughs) you know? Um, But in in actuality, we've done a lot of comparisons to this market to the 80s, and it is quite comparable, frankly. A median income for a family, not an individual family, in the the early 80s was only $24,000 a year. That's $1,900 a month. And yet they were getting $69,000 homes at 18%, and those payments were 40% of their gross income. And so that's pretty ridiculous when you think of it. And yet... There were people today, I I did like a little um, impromptu survey on a lot of my calls. And I'm like, anybody who purchased their first home in the 80s, please tell me, how did you do it? And you get all of these stories of, well, I got married. That helped. Or um, rates were 18%, but I was lucky I found an assumable at six, you know, or three, two, one, buy Jones, if you remember those. And nobody, I mean... They had assumables, they had help from family, they had, um, you know, they purchased with their brother or their sister and got roommates, um, all kinds of creative ways that they got into housing. And, um, and none, not one person said it was a terrible idea. Not one of them regretted, regretted purchasing. Not one person regretted that. In fact, it rates went from 18% and then my brother bought at 10.5%. He's like, my first home was 10.5%. We didn't have furniture for a year. Yeah. We had a house, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, so... So you think this this doom-gloom attitude of, of it's just not possible, it's it's really not true. I mean, it's kind of true. what the media is putting out more so than yeah. the reality of what we're making versus what things cost. Yes. I believe that um, the best way to figure out if it's actually possible is to to get out there and really start looking. And the reason I say that is, you know, my nephew came to me and he's like, yeah, Aunt Tina, I can qualify. And this was great. He could qualify for low 300s. And he's like, this is great. I want to have a house. I want a garage. I want a yard. I want all <laughs> oh, stuff. Yeah. We know that really yeah. well, Tina. I want yeah. four bedrooms. Yeah. And, I, I know. and I want it in Gilbert. <laughs> I'm like, this, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this is amazing. You can, I mean, that is really great as an accomplishment accomplishment that you can qualify for that. And I'm like, how do you feel about Maricopa? And he's <laughs> yeah. like, no, I don't want to live in Maricopa. But the fact is that if you go out to Pinal County, you will find for 360000 which is on a 2-1 buy-down FHA, you're looking at $2,100 a month, which is very comparable to the $2,100 a month it, it would cost you to rent an apartment that was three bedrooms or a single-family home rental at three bedrooms. And you're looking at brand new. You're looking at nice homes. They're not yeah, dumps. They're, <laughs> you know, yeah, those new builds down there are very nice. They yeah. are. And and if you look out towards Surprise, you look out. Um, so it really depends on how flexible you are in the location. If you're not flexible in location, you're going to have to be flexible in condition. And have you, have you noticed any trends that are different pre-COVID versus post-COVID when it comes to people being more willing to move outside of these 
metro areas because yeah. like I've had clients that are like, you know, we both went remote. Like we're okay yeah. now with Maricopa when, mm-hmm. you know, if you would ask me two years ago, Luke, I would have laughed at you because I did not want to go anywhere, you know, longer right. than a 10 minute commute or Absolutely. something. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think you still have people who want to be kind of close to work, even though they don't have to go in every day, but they might have to go in for meetings and they don't want it to be too super inconvenient. Um, but you also want to have amenities. So there are certain areas of the valley that are up and coming that are still affordable that if you can get in early and hold for seven years, that would be amazing. Um, knowing what those areas have coming forward, whether it's transportation or entertainment, things like that, you get in early and you get to ride that appreciation. So what I look for in up and coming areas are six things. Um, first of all, are they centrally located? You know, can you get to pretty much wherever you want to get to in 35 minutes or so-ish, you know? Maybe not way out. Yeah. (laughs) But um, for the most part, you can get to most places in 35 minutes. Um, Are you close to a freeway? Um, Are you close to an employment center like downtown Phoenix or I-17 or the emerging employment centers of the West Valley and Southeast Valley and Cure Corridor up in Northeast uh, areas? Yeah. So you're looking for employment districts. You're looking for an entertainment district as well. Like, where can we go have fun? Are you close to outdoor space? You know, uh, green belts, parks, things like that, hiking trails. And are you close to the airport? I like that. And I, I know that that last one you had mentioned, I believe, on the la- one of your last meetings that we mm-hmm. were attended, um, about 30 to 35 minutes from Sky Harbor. Mm-hmm. And that whole forgot the exact zip code, but just north of South Mountain, right? Kind of that yeah. South, is it South Phoenix? Levine, Levine? and Tolleson. Yeah. yeah. Those are, and South Phoenix as well. But that Levine and Tolleson area is really the area I'm looking at as the new emerging area, mainly because you've got the brand new 202 that just opened and exploded that area. Because it used to be you had to drive through the ugly parts to get to right. the nice parts. Yeah. <laughs> now you can just breeze yeah. right through on the freeway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not only that, but you have in Tolleson, you have a lot of new construction. So you have newer homes, energy efficient homes. They're right around the median price. And they're, they're right there smack where a lot of the infrastructure is going to be built. Yeah. And I know there's, um, you know, kind of on a different topic, but there, there's a lot of the build to rent out that way mm-hmm. as well in the West Valley. It seems yeah. like a lot of those communities, like I've had clients drive by and they're like, hey, are, are these available? And it's like, no, that's actually a build to rent community. Mm-hmm. I had my boy, shout out, shout out to uh, to Mark. I'm sure he'll be listening. But he uh, he was telling me he just did a, um, he just rented a property in one of the build to rent communities. Mm-hmm. And he loves it. He's like, everyone's great. Every, you know, yeah. we don't have any. Brand new. Yeah, everything's I mean, brand new. He's like, it's reasonable. Yeah. Rent's yeah. really reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think for that same house, he would have paid a few hundred dollars more. Right. And he's like, Luke, I just, I can't swing that right now. Yeah. Well, and you know, if you're in your 20s, that's okay. One of the things I try to let people know is that with the home ownership, the earlier you get in, the better, even if it's a little more, you know, expensive. Are you going to take that $200 and do something with it? Or are you going to spend it? Yeah, he's spending yeah. it at the club. I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Sure. So the thing is that if you're going to take that extra two hundred dollars that you're saving and yeah. you're going to put it into something that's going to help your retirement down the line, okay, fine. If that's what you're going to do, but the reality is, in the United States, at the end of your working life, 
the majority of Americans have the majority of their wealth in the home that they live in. And if you're renting at that point, then you cannot stand or you can't tolerate things like your rent's going up. You can't just go get a new job at the age of 65, you know, or 75, right? Yeah. Your rent's going up. You're, you're way more sensitive to the cost of food and all of that. But if you have a home that has a lot of equity, by the time you get to that stage, you can tap into your equity to ride out periods of, of um, inflation like what we just saw over the last two years. And you are not affected by the increases of rent. Right. Yeah, and you're because you have a locked in, you know, so or you're paid off by that. Yeah, point. or you're <laughs> right. yeah, hopefully, hopefully you know, you're paid yeah, off. Ideally. Yeah, and you're you know, and I like we had uh, previously discussed like you know a lot of these fifty five plus shelters now are mm-hmm. are becoming more and more prevalent because you have yes folks that were unable to you know purchase maybe at a younger age and now you know especially if you've waited it it becomes more and more difficult in a sense mm-hmm. too because you can't necessarily go and you know, go to class and, and get a new skill or get a new degree or, you know, yeah. you, you have kind of bills built up too and you're used to living a certain lifestyle. So yeah, my, my heart goes out to those people really. Do. Yeah. And mine too. That's just, but it's one of the realities of living in our economy here is that the earlier you get into an asset-based living situation, like owning your home, that's an accomplishment. It's not a right, though. It's an accomplishment. Yes. And um, if you're paying a little bit more for that, you have to also look at the fact that a rent payment and a mortgage payment are not the same at all, especially when it comes to taxes. Right now, if you're paying, say, $2,100 a month in rent versus $2,100 a month in mortgage, you're spending probably a good $1,000 a month on just interest alone, which is tax deductible. Yeah. And frankly, if you take what you're paying in interest, it goes over typically a lot of times your standard deduction and you get to have a bigger tax refund at the end of the year. Yeah. So there's that. Not only that, but the remainder of your payment is actually going towards your equity. You're paying yourself back. Well, and I I talk to a lot of millennial and Gen Z folks that have a hard time understanding the good and bad debt, though, because a lot of them are out using their credit card. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're scared of the payment, you know, they don't want to be married to a mortgage payment because it's debt and they've been told that debt is bad. So if Mm -hmm. you could kind of lean into like, you know, what really is, if in your opinion, there is a a thing as, you know, such thing as good debt, because Dave Ramsey, you know, he's a, Dave Ramsey, (laughs) and of course he has played a lot on KTAR, of course. And I hear him quite a bit, but he is, I will say, less upset about mortgage debt than he is about credit card debt. Credit card debt and car debt in on the realm of bad, credit cards right up there with the worst, um, followed by car debt because that's the depreciating asset. Right. And then there's your housing debt. Of course, they would like you to pay off your house eventually, and that's always like a big accomplishment once you pay off yeah. your house. You- but on the realm of importance, he is always typically saying, you know, you get rid of that credit card and your car debt first. Um, but as far as mortgage debt goes, it, it does provide, again, that tax deduction, which is good. You're paying yourself back, which is good. And when you look out three to five years, that's really where you want to look. You don't want to see, what's my home going to be worth 
in a year, you want to be like, what if my home doesn't appreciate at all? Where am I at in yeah. five years? Like how much equity will I have pulled out or, you know, built up? And that's really what you're looking at. And that's what people don't realize when it comes to comparing rent versus mortgage. And meanwhile, rents are probably scaling up, you know, over the course of those next mm-hmm. three years. And it's, you see people all the time that just want to kick the can down the road because they think they're doing themselves a service by waiting for rates to drop, waiting for inventory, waiting, just waiting, you know, mm-hmm. for, a, for a larger down payment. I think it's, it's very important for us as agents to relay that the sooner you get in the game, the, the better you can set yourself up for the future. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, you're young enough to, um, I mean, I'm at a stage where I don't like a lot of risk because I've already accumulated a certain amount of money that I don't want to lose. But when you're building and you're in your 20s, you have a lot more leeway to make your mistakes if you're going to make a mistake. And with housing, maybe you make a mistake. Say you make a mistake. You buy a home. Oh, okay. Maybe I don't like this payment or this doesn't work for me anymore. Whatever. You do sell it. You can sell it. Yeah. (laughs) It's still there. You know what I mean? (laughs) The idea that you're going to be upside down or anything like that right off the bat um, is is minimal, frankly. Um, you know, you do have closing costs and things like that to worry about, but for the most part, you should have had a down payment, which you will either use to clo- use in closing costs or whatever, but for the most part, you're not going to have to come to the table with money to sell your house. You know, most likely you're going to get a check at the end, and um, the longer you've held it, the more likely you will have had built up some equity in that house in addition to your payments. And so I would say that at least with housing, you get to enjoy that asset while you are accumulating equity in it. Um, it's it's a different feeling. You get to paint it whatever you like. <laughs> you want to have a pet, have a pet. Yeah. You know, you can um, there's you a know, size, take liberties with yeah, it. Yeah, there's a sense of, of pride. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, do you have any thoughts on down payment assistance programs for people that are struggling to to save up that five percent or so? Mm-hmm. I I do have thoughts on that. Um, there's nothing wrong with using that if you can qualify for it. The one issue that you will have is that if we are in a seller's market, a strong seller's market, you're going to get kicked to the curb because there are going to be other people who don't need that that will look like stronger buyers. So the best time for a first time home buyer, believe it or not is not when everybody else says it's the perfect time. It's right about now when it's less than perfect. The less than perfect time for housing is great for less than perfect buyers. Does that make sense? Because the sellers don't have their pick of the litter for buyers. So they're like, well, I don't have anybody else. Okay, this down payment assistance buyer, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. You know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so you'll, you'll find that the sellers are paying about... 47% 47% of all sales right now, and that's including luxury and everything, 47% of all sales um, have some form of seller-paid closing costs incentive, and that goes up to over 50% when you get into 600000 and below, which is FHA range. Right. And then um, the amount that you can get right now from sellers, the median is about $10,000, and that pays for pretty much a rate buy-down, which can save you you know, three or $400 for the first year off your payment while you wait to see if rates come down. It gives you the opportunity to um, kind of see if that happens. But at the the worst case scenario, you just get the rate that you qualified for. Right. You know? Yeah. It's not like a variable rate where it could go and skyrocket. And, yeah. you know, if you're a short-term investor, we have a lot of fix and flip wholesalers that listen to the show as well. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, one thing we've been doing a lot on our flips is underwriting more and more concessions in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can go wrong with that because, like you said, it like 47% of the times that flip under 600000 you are going to have a concession or yeah. they're going to ask at least for it. And if you don't yeah. have your pick of the litter, if you have the first or second offer, you don't want to be in a position where you're turning that down and now all of a sudden you're sitting on market and that furthers yeah. your issues. So just mm-hmm. underwrite it into the deal up front, you know, maybe mm-hmm. walk away from a couple flips that are too skinny yeah, and wait for that one to come up where it actually makes sense. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of folks right now that are out there, um, especially a lot of the bigger players in that space right now have been pretty selective on what they're purchasing Yeah, fr- from my experience. And when it comes to flip investing, um, the market right now is still, I would say, guarded on whether or not it's a good time. And the in every market, you're always going to have opportunities. So if you see a property that's good regardless of the market, you always take advantage of that, right? You go buy it. You make your money off of it. However, you're not going to see as many of those in markets that are not seller's markets. And so the issue is right now we're in a very, very weak seller market, which is good for buyers frankly, because they can buy their home and they don't have to worry about it depreciating and they can still get some pretty decent incentives from the sellers. But if you're a flip investor and you overpay for a home or over improve on a home, you can't take that mistake and ride it out with appreciation. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Wait a few months for the market to get yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. In, in the markets that we've had in 2021, um, 20 and 21, for flipping, you could be a terrible flip investor and still make a lot of money. You could make terrible decisions, but just ride the market out because it was going up so fast and you could still make a little bit of money. Um, that's what we used to say, even a turkey can fly in a hurricane. <laughs> yeah, you know what easy, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy. But now this type of market is you have to be smart. You really have to know your costs. You have to know for sure what you can, what the bottom line is on that property and you have to be very good at what you do. You do. And one thing that, that really stuck out to me that you had mentioned, and I believe in a previous podcast was, you know, in a depreciating market, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to say, Hey, we're going to buy it at X and we're going to sell it at Y because mm-hmm. it's hard to really know what is that? How much is it really going to depreciate? You know, right. is it going to be X percentage or is it going to be Y? So it's, that was mm-hmm. honestly what keeps me up at night. I'm like, if we Spinning get in, roulette wheel a little yeah. bit. <laughs> if we were to get into a depreciating market, what would you, what would you say to someone out there that is trying to learn how to, you know, really underwrite and really understand, like really understand the numbers. Like I know your comfort market index, that's mm-hmm. something that we track. Yeah. We, I would recommend everyone listening to the show, go subscribe to the uh, comfort report. I know a lot of people get it at their title company, but you know, <laughs> go subscribe. That's your face. <laughs> <laughs> go subscribe, support Tina and, and the Crumford Report. It is truly amazing. It really is. is. There's the best a, source for information. And you know, it's, just to throw it out there, since you threw it out there, uh, we are proprietary. We are yeah. only for real estate agent members of the MLS, not title companies or lenders. Uh, we're not allowed to sell subscriptions to them. It's a, we have a specific data license with the MLS that says our data is for you, the member. So the agents, yeah. And um, so as a result, this information can only get to the client through you. Yes, right. as a licensee. So that's why my hush your face. Yes, no. I know. I know it gets abused out yeah. there. I'm not completely um, ignorant to that fact, but <laughs> but realize that um, it, it it's very special out here. The relationship we have with the MLS, you can't just get the same data in, say, Seattle 
or Washington, D.C. or anything because data companies don't typically like to give out their data to other data companies. So it's yeah. not just the generic API key that anybody can go purchase through their brokerage then. It's a separate built relationship to MLS. Yeah, it's have. absolutely separate. And it's built off of trust that we've had with the MLS since 2005, 2006, and seven. Um, built by Michael Orr, who's a mathematician from Oxford. And um, they brought these analytics to the forefront during the crash of 2008. And our mission, if it was, you know, if you can say, for me, I went through 2008 as a salesperson, a lot of PTSD. (laughs) And so the worst part of going through that whole crash is not having the data, knowing that it was available, but not having it to give us some any kind of inclination of what was happening. So a lot of agents just, if you've ever heard the, the term chasing the market down. Yeah. yeah. yeah like they <laughs> do the price reduction and they're still too high. And they yeah, do another price reduction and yeah, they're still yeah. too high. That is just not a good place to be. But with the Cromper Market Index, what that's created for us is the ability to now guide people through times of uncertainty and especially flip investors to be like, stop buying properties yeah. now. Right. Like well, when you see that thing going down by like a double black diamond ski slope, <laughs> that is the time to stop buying, to sell everything you have and wait. Yeah. You know? Well, and I want to say too, from from an agent, you know, it's like, I, I really appreciate all the work you do, Tina. And I know you do a lot of work, you know, I'm sure behind the scenes and you help a lot of agents and, and in turn, they help a lot of clients out there make, mm-hmm. you know, informed decisions. So well, yeah, thank you for that. You're but, welcome. And thank you. I think a lot of times we say we don't sell staff. That's we sell confidence. Yeah. And as a buyer, especially a first-time home buyer, you want to feel like you're making an educated. Calculated decision. Calculated. Yeah. yeah. There's always risk in everything, but at least you're making an educated decision. Like, you know, the level of risk that you're taking on. The metrics today tell us you can buy a home. It's not going to go up by $20,000 in two months like it was, <laughs> you know, in 2021. So you're not in that situation, which is scary all by itself. Um, and you're also not in a situation where if you wait a week, the prices are going to plummet or or anything. You know, they're going to, as a seller, you don't have to worry about your prices not sustaining themselves either. But at the same time, we have this thing, little thing called seasons, here too. So as a buyer, especially a first-time home buyer, the best time is to come out in the beginning part of the season because right now everybody's at the open. (laughs) They're not not paying attention. (laughs) But when you look at our seasonality, you will see certain zip codes just quietly every week get hotter and hotter and hotter all the way from now up until May. And we have a video on this. We can share it with you that just shows how the expansion of the heat of the of the season starts out and peaks right around May or June before it cools off in the summertime and then finally into the fourth quarter. So there is a ebb and flow. And as a first-time home buyer, if you're getting assistance or you really want to have that um, that concession from the seller, then this is really, you need to get out there. You need to figure out what the inventory is for you, get with your lender, figure out exactly what your situation is, and and find out, is this impossible for me? Because uh, most likely you're going to find that it's not impossible. You might just have to change some of your ideas of where you're going to live or what the condition of the home is going to be or whether it's going to be single family or condo, yeah. things like that. But I, I definitely am a proponent of homeownership early, as early as you can get. I didn't actually get to own a home until after I got married. I'll be honest about that. Um, so I didn't really own a home until I was about 31. 
On the flip side of that, what, what are the best months as a seller to get the most out of your home? The best month to get the... So it's not about price. It's actually about activity. Right. So if you're in the first quarter, um, that spring season, first and second quarter, um, that is where you have the most buyer activity in general. Okay. It's just, it's exciting. It's nice, you know, yeah. but will you get more for your home? Probably not, but you'll sell your home faster. Right. Generally. Um, same thing in the fourth quarter, but the opposite where it's not necessarily going to affect your price, but you're going to be on the market a little bit longer. Yeah. That's all. So. And for, like, so for your subscribers, for your followers, I've had a couple agents ask me. I know you had a couple agents on your team here ask you as well. Um, and we just talked about building that confidence in your buyers mm -hmm. and sellers. So as, as a listing agent, uh, I'm going on an appointment. What statistics and data do you think I should bring with me from your comfort report to mm -hmm. help build that confidence in them? My favorite report is the one that just shows how many contracts every week are being accepted in their price range in their area. Right. So contract so, ratio, is that? Nope. It's just a flat number. It's okay. not even a crazy calculation. It's just a count. <laughs> it's like, this is how many contracts were accepted last week in your price range, in your zip code. Okay. That's how many buyers you're competing for. Okay. And then the second one is how many days on market they were on prior to contract. So was it 18 days? kind of gives you a, an expectation of, okay, is it going to be seven days or is it going to be three weeks, you right, know, yeah. before I can ex find a contract that I can accept? And then the third one is their list price at contract. So is it going up? Is it going down? Is it flat? That tells you, do I want to push the market on my price at list on the first day or right. do, um, do I want to come in pretty aggressive and stay right in the comps? You know, or is my home, of course, it's an average, so better than average homes will go for more. Homes that are less than, than average will right. go for less, right? But it kind of helps with the strategy of I'm competing for, say, I don't know, four buyers a week are writing uh, acceptable offers in my price range every week. I want to get one of those, yeah. you know, or maybe you're finding that you're in the upper range and you only get one buyer every month. You know, now you know every showing counts. Right. Right. So I like that one because it, it gives them a good idea of of how to come out in their first week being active. Also, there's another one to supplement it that gives you your active inventory every day to see is your active inventory, your competitors going up or down. It works for both buyers and sellers, too. So you think the same data you just said then mm -hmm. for buyers as well? Absolutely, so. because the same number of buyers that the seller is competing for is the same number of buyers that those buyers are competing with, you know? <laughs> so, um, and, you know, when they see days on market, then they realize, oh, well, if it's very low days on market, then they don't have a lot of time if they see a property that they like. Right. You know, so everybody's not in a hurry until they are, you know, until they see the perfect property. Now they're like, okay, now we got to get everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> It's uh, you want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row so when that property comes up, you can just go in and you know if it's a good price. You know right off the bat if, for the condition and all of that stuff. You don't have to feel like, you know, oh, am I paying too much for this house? I feel like not enough agents really do that side of the business. You know, we have a lot of agents that are un unfortunately dead weight that don't really want to do the back-end research to understand what you teach to all of us as agents. You know, I think what you do is extremely important for all of us in the Arizona real estate market. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, I you can thank all of my PTSD for all of, the bad, <laughs> all of the bad markets that we've been through that we're like, okay, let's not repeat that. <laughs> um, but I think, though... 
that as far as the younger generation comes along, uh, we, I'll, I'll be honest, I had, I think it was AOL in my day, <laughs> back in my day. Um, so there wasn't all of this massive information that comes out. And um, there's a lot of bad stats. I mean, stats that give us all a bad name um, out on TikTok. And I, sometimes they get sent to me like, what do you think of this? I'm like, this is the worst chart I've ever seen. <laughs> and um, let's just, I'll give you one example. Okay, there was a chart that came out on TikTok and it showed from the 90s, the cost of rent going skyrocketing, right? And then they had the cost of real income, which was like flat, all right? Now, those two lines seem pretty straightforward, right? And they looked very alarming because they were going like this, right? Right. But the issue is that real income is adjusted for inflation. And guess what goes into inflation? The cost of rent. So you're looking at a cost of rent that was not adjusted for inflation, yeah, <laughs> and then you're looking yeah. at your real income, which is already infl- adjusted for inflation, which is affected by the rent that's right, actually yeah. going up. And so when you actually adjusted both of them to a like for like, rents actually came down. Well, and that's huge. And I, I, I mean, I talk to a lot of Gen Z and millennials that just they love to see that headline or that TikTok two minute mm-hmm. or two second short and just say, well, it's me. I can't afford it. You guys, you know, bring so- some comfort, right? Yeah. yeah. Being complacent. It, it brings does. them comfort in, in thinking that they know it's out of reach. Yeah. Know? Like, oh, well, why should buy? Yeah, I can't even do it. Try. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm just going to continue on. But the reality is this. And let me tell you this. Now I was in my 20s. I keep going back to the 90s, right? Okay. Interest rates were 9%. Um, I honestly felt like this is ridiculous. I had a two-bedroom. Now, don't laugh. I had a two-bedroom, one bath in central Phoenix. I was paying by myself five fifty a month for it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was across the street from a crack den okay. <laughs> at the time. It's really yeah. nice now. <laughs> it was a cra- In fact, I thought it was a really nice neighborhood because the police would drive by without the lights on. And I thought, isn't that nice? I feel so safe. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> I was clearly very young. <laughs> anyway, um, the thing is that had I known how people were buying real estate back then, I probably could have bought. But I was looking straight up at uh, only conventional. I didn't know anything about FHA. Right. I was just going off of what the news said. The rates were this or whatever. One loan officer I said said my payment would be this. And I'm like, I'm paying five fifty a month if I wanted to buy my own one bedroom, one bath. And the only thing I wanted was inside laundry and a dishwasher. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. That would make my whole life It's just <laughs> to have those two things. That would be in the lap of luxury. And, um, and I would have had to pay nearly $1,000 a month. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I don't make nearly enough money to pay that. So I thought, oh, well, I just won't be able to buy a house. But the fact is, I talk later on, you know, here I am now, much older, and uh, my friends who bought back in their 20s, my, my boyfriend bought his first home, assumable, no qualify, just assume this guy's payments on a credit card. <laughs> he bought it with a credit card. That's solid. Which he yeah. paid off with his commission. And he just assumed this guy's payment. And I'm like, wow. had I known I could have done that, I probably would have bought a house. Or if I'd known anything about FHA or if I'd known anything about uh, assisted down payment, I probably would have gone that route. But the fact is I just didn't have the information and I just went, oh, I guess I won't be buying a house. Well, and that's one of our big missions here at Young Money Mindset is to educate, you know, these these generations to really 
understand all of their different options. And one big option that I've even been utilizing is, is seller financing, creative mm-hmm. financing. So I'd love to learn a little bit from you about subject to, I know that's kind of the trendy way yes. to say Uh-oh. it uh, these days. <laughs> so, you know, and we, we've been looking at them and buying them, you know, and adding them into our rental portfolio. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's been a lot of talk on them, but yeah. I don't think they're anything new. From my understanding, they're right, they're not new. Rebranded. A, lot, a lot of a lot of agents, though, will tell you that it's illegal, right? It's um, this is a brand new illegal thing that you guys are trying to do with subject to purchase. Um, it's not illegal; it's against the lender's rules, but it's not illegal. It's risky, yeah, for the seller. Um, essentially, if you are a seller and you're ex- um, you're agreeing to what we would call the old name was a wrap where you're wrapping up an old loan into a new loan and you're getting, um, basically you are assuming the seller's payment, but you're not letting their lender know about it. It's not illegal. It's just secret. It's not illegal, but the, what can happen is that legally the lender can come back and say, I don't like that. You need to pay the entire mortgage. Yeah. Now. You need to pay the whole thing. Um, and so that's a risk to the seller that they have to take on. And most of sellers don't really want to take on that risk unless they really have to. Unless they have to. And maybe that eases the concern. And I've, you know, used that same example when I'm speaking with clients that are trying to purchase a house. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, if you were, let's say, upside down, right? The mm-hmm. biggest fear for buyers, you were upside down in a property. Usually, you know, not always, but usually you would be able to find an investor you know, that would come in and at least mm-hmm. take that negative equity and mm-hmm. be able to continue, you know, even if it's a negative cash flow play, right, where right. maybe they're losing $200 a month, $100 a month, mm-hmm. but they're able to, you know, ride it out and ride through that time. Right. So, and that sometimes clicks in, in my client's head is like, oh, wait, so maybe worst case scenario, you're telling me, Luke, if the market were to go down, hypothetically, the market crashes the day after I buy and I lose my job and I can't make my mortgage payment, I don't have to foreclose like I saw maybe my family go through. Yeah, very few people with a two and a half to 3% mortgage are going to face foreclosure, (laughs) okay? Just not going to happen. They have way too many choices. They could rent their property out for what they owe and undercut every other other landlord in town, I mean, if they wanted to. Or they could do an assumption where somebody picks up their, and frankly, many lenders, as long as their loan is getting paid, they may overlook it. It's the minute that it's not paid. Yep. Right. That's, that's where the risk comes in. So that's why a lot of sellers will have at least $1 going to them so that they get, when they get their dollar payment, they know that their mortgage payment has been paid. Yeah. And if they don't get that, then they know they have to go make that mortgage payment. Yeah. Or we even have our, our escrow ser- or the servicing companies now are sending them emails and, you know, they're CC'd mm-hmm. onto everything, the statements and all yeah. of that. And often they're not that long. They might only be doing that for, you know, maybe a year or so. It's not like the, the rest of the loan, you know, yeah. typically they're refinanced into a traditional yeah. eventually. Well, and as an investor, I mean, we're obviously trying to get them for... 10 years, I mean, 10 years, five, seven mm-hmm. to 10 years to reduce our risk as well. Like if I tell right, you, yeah. you know, I'm going to take it over subject to, but in a year I have to refi, like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. looking at it too, like from a risk standpoint of like where are rates going to be at, 
you know, what right. does that look like? It, mm-hmm. Does this deal still make sense? But, you know, even going back to the different options millennials and Gen Z have, um, mm-hmm. or even seller carries, you know, sell, traditional seller financing. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I mentioned that because a lot of people don't realize that there is people in a different stage of life. We're in a building phase. We're trying to purchase assets, but there's other people in a, in a maintaining phase, right? Where they just want to maintain their wealth and they don't necessarily need to, um, you know, maybe they have a paid off property. And if, if you can pay them, you know, market, market interest, or maybe slightly above that, mm-hmm. you know, they would be willing to, um, to sell or finance you that property. And a lot of them um, just, you know, they, they only think they have to go to Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America yes. to get a loan. There are a lot of, I mean, here's another angle that some people have taken where uh, FHA recently, I'm sure you already know this, FHA changed their program for multifamily where if you're going to live in, say, a three-plex or a four-plex and you're going to live in one of the units, you only have to put 3.5% down. And you can buy the whole thing and then rent out the other three. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, but some people are like, well, hey, maybe I can't afford that by myself, but I can get another family who can live in another unit and then rent those other two out. Or we can all four of us buy one unit mm-hmm. and all live in it. You know, So there are multiple ways. And a lot of the, the baby boomers that I interviewed on their first home, like one of my analyst friends, he said, yeah, I bought my first home with three of my buddies. Yeah. We all bought, and then one got married, so he bought us out, and we all made money, and it was great. Us out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He got married, and he's like, you guys get out. <laughs> I'll give you some money. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's it's however you figure it out. Um, and, you know, even my nephew have had help from his parents. Um, there's all kinds of ways to get your foot into the, the housing market. And that FHA, so it's a fourplex. It's $1.2 million, correct? Is that... Um, I don't, I'm not a lender, so always talk to your lender. Um, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, I, d- I don't think it has to be just a fourplex. It's just oh, like multifamily. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah two I, met, I met up to a fourplex. Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, but always talk to your lender. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know, I mean, speaking of, of, you know, multifamily, it's still considered residential, right? Yes. Anything sub four is tip is residential. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that at least I've been looking at, you know, the two to four unit multi and it's like, mm-hmm. it's so hard to find. I mean, if we're being yeah. honest, like to find something that's halfway decent that, yeah. you know, doesn't ne- necessarily need to, you know, be burned to the ground and rebuilt. <laughs> like there's. Well, yeah. And I, I think that what I want to get across is that nothing in real estate is ever forever. You know, today you may be having a hard time finding those. But you may have quite a few people that don't have 30-year mortgages that they have five-year adjustables. And once those five-year adjustable mortgages, which are commercial loans, once they adjust, you might have somebody there that's like, okay, I'd really like to sell this now. The cash flow's not there. Um, So one of two things that's going to have to happen, either they're going to sell off the individual units, like turn it into a condo complex, or they're going to have to drop the price and sell it at a, a lower price to accommodate the cash flow for a new buyer. Do you think that would be a good strategy or, or possibly something worth like, you know, looking into more? Cause I haven't really done a whole lot of research on doing that, like buying a commercial building, right. And turning them into condos. Um, because when it, yeah. and theoretically that would help our inventory issue. Of it would lower. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that coming up, up where they were originally supposed to be apartments. They're not getting the, the rates 
that they need or their vacancy rates are too high and their loans are getting ready to adjust to from 3% or whatever they got to the going rate. And so it's a good idea to get in with somebody who knows how to convert those because that is a big deal. We haven't really done a lot of conversions since 2005. Yeah, and I that, that would definitely be something I would love to, to learn more about. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about real estate is that what's old is then new again. Right. And so <laughs> the wraps, which we have not needed to do wraps or subject twos in literally 25 years, but here they are, we right? We haven't had to do a buy down in 25, 30 years, but yet, look at that. Right. We just took it off the shelf, dusted that off in 2022, yeah. <laughs> you know, and trained a bunch of people on how to do that. And so we have tools in real estate for these times of, of stress, if you will. And then when that stress goes away, we stick them back on the shelf to collect dust once again. And so condo conversions are one of those tools. Um, rate buy-downs are one of those tools. Subject twos are tools. We have all kinds of things that, you know, the experienced agent can just say, oh, I guess we're doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, and I, one thing too, that really, really stuck out to me was um, that commercial follows residential. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of yeah. talks of, of commercial being uh, in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. In five years or when a lot of these adjustable rates, you know, mm-hmm. start, start coming up. And that's one thing that, you know, our audience should really know is, is be grateful that we have the 30 year fixed out here Yes, because, Absolutely. you know, the UK, uh, Australia and some other countries, they only have a five year, uh, yes. you know, they, they look at Canada, I believe is one of them as well that, that yeah. only have a five year. And, mm-hmm. and I would imagine too, just thinking about that, it makes a lot of sense why you see a lot of Canadians down here purchasing. I would imagine they, they, mm-hmm. they see that as well. Like, oh, wow, you guys have a 30 year, 3% rate or mm-hmm. 5%, 7% rate. That's great. So mm-hmm. it kind of reframes that, um, that mindset too around yeah. a 5% rate being bad. It's like, well, it's also fixed for, for 30 years. Exactly. And, you know, I'll be honest, I bought a, an investment property in June of 2022, pick of the market. I knew it was the peak when I bought there and uh, I got a 5.8% investor rate, which I thought was terrible at the time. <laughs> I'm like, this is outrageous. I'm going to refinance in the air. Uh, you know? And now I'm like, you're going to have to, you know, pry that rate from my cold dead fingers, even though I'm at, you know, I think we discussed, I'm, I'm probably negative 250 a month on that. I, I get 1600 a month. I'm in it for 19 with the HOA fees and all that. And so, uh, but I have other investments that are offsetting that I'm keeping it long-term. So you ride those out long-term. And um, these rates are the same way, you know, you might feel like, oh, that's terrible. Well, those rates aren't forever. Nothing's forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. you get in where you can get in and then you ride it down. Are you, you know? consistently trying to fill your rental portfolio in any market? Are you, do you have the Warren Buffett mindset of always buy? Well, it all depends on my own ability to buy, right. frankly. But if I have an ability to buy and I like the property and I would live there myself, we all have our own criteria. Um, for area, condition, all of that stuff. If I'm in a position, then yeah, I don't have a problem accumulating real estate. Um, I think, first of all, I know real estate, so I like to invest in what I know. Right. And I follow it very closely. And um, and long-term, it's, it's a very hard argument for anybody to say that long-term it's not been beneficial. Anybody you talk to who has owned their home for a 
you know, at least five years is like, yeah, I haven't lost any money on it. Right. It's the short term that's the riskiest. It's like short term flips are like the day traders of Wall Street. You know, you can lose a lot of money, you can make a lot of money, but it's the riskiest way of of owning a home. And if you're a short-term real estate investor out there and you do catch yourself in a position where you have to, you know, you're in a negative equity position, make sure that you're positioning yourself with reserves and managing your money in a, in a, in a way that worst case scenario, you refi out of that hard money loan. I know yeah. that you're getting and, <laughs> yes. and you are holding it, even if you're losing a few hundred dollars in negative mm-hmm. cash flow, but you're able to ride it out because I have a lot of buddies that took massive losses, but yeah. if they would have just rented it out 12, 18, 24 months down the line, yeah. they would have been selling in today's market and they would have probably made yeah. money or worst case scenario broke even. So yeah, um, the, con- the condo I bought, I bought at the peak of the market. I saw it drop by, you know, I bought it at 300. It dropped to about 260. And then all last year, it climbed back up, and I'm probably breaking even on it. If I wanted to sell it, I could, but I don't want to. I like it. And you're not playing a one year game, right? I'm not playing that game. Exactly. I'm in it for the long haul, and uh, eventually the rents will most likely go up. I mean, we're in a lull. Rents have not been rising for about, uh, gosh, since August of 2021 here. And, um, And they just started going down in apartment complexes. I'm looking at single family. And, um, you know, we go through these periods of lulls and stability and boredom, if you will, <laughs> until they start moving again. And the reality is that the way our economy is going, the way our incomes are going, and our population is going and all of that, um, it's reasonable to expect that properties in the interior cities and the exterior, but the interior cities are going to continue to maintain their rents and their values and potentially definitely go up. I say potentially, definitely in the same sentence. Uh, but, I mean, I'm looking long-term. It's yeah. reasonable to expect that 1600 a month today is not going to be where it's going to be in five years from now. Yeah, and in, in just speaking of Arizona, too, this is Arizona we're talking about, and this isn't, you know, nationwide, too. Mm-hmm. Arizona, I think, is positioned pretty uniquely in a sense that we do have a lot of companies. One thing that really stuck out is we're going to be building spaceships here in Mesa. We're, we're, I know. Can you believe that? I know. I can't. Spe- Star Trek <laughs> <Yeah>. right here. <laughs> that, that tripped me out when I heard that. I was like, wow, that's incredible to think. But yeah. that just goes to show, it gives you an example out there where, you know, there's so many companies here, right? And there's, mm-hmm. I think a lot of them are incentivized. And you know, one thing that always gets brought up is the water, you know? And, oh, yeah. And, and, and it's such a funny one. It is. It because it, 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 and it's one of those things, too, where I'm like, you know, I, I haven't researched it, you know, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not an expert in water and what's going on. But I would imagine if these companies, Tina, are investing billions and billions of dollars, I would imagine they have some data around this or they have folks looking into this. Well, I could say we've had water scares before. Okay, and then we have a bunch of rain, and everyone's like, oh, okay, it's wet. Yeah, <laughs> everyone goes back, yeah. So I think most people who have been in Phoenix and lived here, like I've lived here for since 1993, so we're looking at 30 years. Um, we're so desensitized to water scares. Right. We're like, oh, one of those again, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, just make sure you don't get a well. No. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is that um, with water, we have um, azwater.gov is a good resource. Um it's a government resource. You can actually pull up an interactive map. You can click on little spots and it lets you know if they've gotten their assured water supply, who's supplying the water, um, what the subdivision is, and all of that, if you're afraid of that sort of thing. Um, some people, that's a big deal. They just want to make sure they're on city water. You know, that's okay. 
um, means they're going to be in the interior city because um, it just takes a while for that to come out. But right now, here's the thing about the water certificates. Water certificates are required for builders who are going to be selling to you and I as individual consumers who are going to live in the property. Okay. If you are a Wall Street investor building or purchasing an apartment complex, you don't need a water certificate because the government doesn't care about you. You can lose your money. (laughs) You're not going to cause a consumer to lose their money because of lack of water. So that's the big thing. And um, it will most likely get rectified. We're looking at, you know, 100 years out. You know, a lot of things can happen in a hundred years. A lot of things can happen in five years. We could have mass flood in here, yeah. right. and you know, you never know. They could be making rain here. clouds and making it artificially rain. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, Boy, yeah. Years from now, it's not unrealistic. Bill yeah. Gates is going to make some machine. It's going to pull water out here of the go, air. We the mega city out in Like, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, like I said, I'm not an I'm not a water expert either. All I know is that we have pulled enough permits that have water certificates for three years. You know, if you look at all of our permitting and our building that we've done in the last three years, we have enough for another three years. So it's not something that if you buy a home today, if you have a hundred waters, a hundred years water, you have a hundred years water. Yeah. You're you're not going out. Yeah. There's not a massive drought that's going to happen tomorrow where all of a sudden you go to turn on your faucet and there's no water. Yeah. I mean, that has happened in California. I mean, and there are some things that you have to be aware of because not everybody's on city water, right? There are wells out here, and there are uh, shared containers under wa- underground that are for hauled water. And so all of the bad press that we got from the Rio Verde issue was from hauled water because the companies that were hauling water out to Rio Verde for those underground tanks that, you know, houses would share – they were taking their water from Scottsdale. Right. So it wasn't that they didn't have water. It's just that this agreement had not really been solidified between those two cities. And Scottsdale's like, hello, we yeah. don't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, so. Do you know whatever happened with that? Because I never yeah, thought. They figured, yeah, they, did. they figured it out. So Scottsdale Everybody's ended up. getting their water up there Yeah. Scottsdale's like, okay, we're fine now. We made an agreement. So Scottsdale's providing the water. They found a, a supply company. And so they're back in business. Wow. And it's not again. It wasn't that they ran out of water. It was mostly a and agreement. That was the story, right? <laughs> yeah, <lot> of water. <laughs> I know. Well, water is a big deal out here. So anybody who's like, I can't turn on my faucet, that's gonna create some pretty negative headlines. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And especially in Arizona, I feel like it just automatically people like think of Arizona if they if they're not you know haven't been here. Or I was born and raised right here in Arizona, mm-hmm. so it's like. But, like, people that move out here, sometimes they have, like, this idea of, like, Arizona being this desert and desolate, like, place that's, like, all brown (laughs) and mountains and cactuses. And, like, who knows? I mean, there we go. Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot of that for sure. Well, we're doing a lot of things that make it a little more brown, you know. So there's less grass, of course. Um, They're not building as many golf courses. Um, But in general, it's the farms, the farming aspect is what really sucks a lot of the water out, especially alfalfa. So that's been a big um, controversy. Alfalfa, the most water-sucking plant on the planet. I'm like, why do we grow that here again? Yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah. um, so I think that what people don't realize is that most of the water being used is not from population growth. Yeah, it's. 
from, you know, increasing production from the farming. And, um, you know, back to kind of being an agent and, you know, 2024 here and, um, you know, I know a lot of things are going on this year, but one thing I've been telling my team and kind of coaching my team up on is, you know, in an election year, Mm-hmm. Being 24, the most amount of homes are going to be sold between January and the end of August. So is there data surrounding that or is that just word on the street right now that maybe is just being kind of emphasized because we're in this election year and that there could be more uncertainty around the end of the year Q4? Okay, so typically elections have almost zero. I say almost zero, not Exactly zero, but very little impact on whatever the housing market's doing. Um, what it does have an impact on is stock market. And so there's two aspects of housing that do pay attention to the stock market that they really rely on it, and that is retirees and luxury. So what happens over the last four elections, right after the election, the stock market has spiked. And so if you are rich, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and you have a lot of assets in the we- in, in the stock market, you're like, maybe I'll wait till after election. I might be a little richer, yeah, right? right? Maybe I won't have to sell off as much of my portfolio. So oftentimes you'll hear somebody say in the fourth quarter, I think I'm just going to wait till after the election. Not because they're afraid or, you know, they just want what's uncertain to become certain and see how the stock market, provi- you know, reacts to that and then perhaps buy in the spring. So what you see is a lag and the thing about retirees is that the latter part of the year is not a big time for them anyway. Right. They're usually active right now. Um, and then you have our regular seasons anyway. Our season is from January all the way up through May, and then those closings bleed into July, possibly August, but mostly June and July. And um, and then you're already you're on your downside. It's 1,000 degrees here. And <laughs> no, you're yeah, already – and, and then from November, by the time you get to the election – November is the shortest month with a holiday, and I guarantee you, you will see a journalist out there that says, oh, sales from October to, dis- to November. Yeah. Oh, they went down. It's terrible. Well, Clearly the wrong person won. <laughs> yeah. And then it come January, you're now uh, ratifying the election, and it's the beginning of our spring season, and then everything picks up, and that's obviously because the right person won. <laughs> and so it's just the seasonality of our housing market coincides with the low time and the election and then an increasing activity right after the ratification. And so they always like to make those correlations. And the other correlation that's coming around is like, oh, mortgage rates. They're going to try to keep the mortgage rates down because it's a election year. Well, I went all the way back to 1991. If rates were already coming down and we had an election, they just continued. (laughs) There's like the rates were already doing what they were doing. The election was just in there. It's yeah, There's nothing that we can actually point to the election having the sole impact on what rates were doing. In fact, they typically did something after the election, which is either we had an election and we went into a recession, so the rates <laughs> go down, or we had an election and they, you know, whatever happened and the, the rates went up. It's... Um, what happens with rates is if everybody goes to the stock market, which it typically has happened, right, then they're pulling out of bonds. And when you pull out of bonds, then it causes the the rates to go up right? as um, they have to bribe you to come back. So that's why the bond rates go back up. So anyway, the if anything, what affects the housing market after election is policy. It's not the election itself. People just aren't that 
you know, if you can buy a house, you buy a house. You're like, oh, maybe I'll wait to see if who so-and-so gets elected. Nobody cares. Yeah. Most people don't care because uh, they're going to do what they're going to do. It depends on whether or not they feel confident in their job, that they're going to keep their job, um, whether or not they feel good about the housing market in general, if they're going to put down roots, they're going to start a family. It just depends on where they are in life. And wherever they are in life, they're not going to be like, oh, wait, we got to wait till after the election. Right. You know, yeah. it doesn't work. It doesn't well, work that way. And it's like, you know, survivability is something that I'm sure everyone's like, it's like something I always go back to is like, if you can survive, you know, mm-hmm. like meaning if you can make that payment, then hang on, right? Like just, yeah. you know, make that decision. And I just really want to emphasize that point because there's too many people I feel like just sitting and sitting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, we've, as agents, right, like we've all had the client with the tag on them in our CRM. That's like this guy's told me he's going to buy next year. And then we've been watching and watching and watching. And it's just, you know, and some folks have to see it for themselves. And I, mm-hmm. and I understand that, right? I've communicated really well to folks and really shown them your data and, and, and educated them as much as I possibly could and Mm -hmm. it's like they saw you know home prices continuously rise and they're like man you're right I should have bought but hey I'm ready now and I'm I'm jumping in and I Mm -hmm. that's respectable to me and I I understand that not everyone is going to be the data person that's you know can see it on a graph and just it it clicks yeah um some people are more visual or they just need to you know see their neighbor you know in the rental property they own like you know, come over for a beer and say, man, I'm paying 2,500 bucks. Like I locked in on a 3% rate and they're like, still, still the renter. So, yeah. Um, I'd say that, um, my recommendation is you can find this on any kind of, uh, you know, mortgage payment estimate website is to go to the amortization schedule, right. And go to payment 60, which is five years and be like, where is my, where is my balance going to be then? Yeah. And what do you think your property value is going to be worth? And that's going to be your equity that you would have built up in five years just by making your payment. Yeah. You know, and can you say if your rent's now 2100 can you say that your rent's not going to go up in five years? Probably not. Is your rent probably going to be somewhere close to that in five years? Maybe. We don't know. But the fact is, is that if it's right now costing you, say, $300 extra to buy instead of rent, Right. Are you going to do something else with that three hundred dollars? Is my question. Like, That's what key. are you going to do with that? Very key, because like, like you said, most people they're they're throwing that away. You said, your buddy's spending at the club. Like most people think that they're doing themselves a service by doing that, but they're not investing in mutual funds. They're not buying bonds. They're not making additional yeah. investments with that. Yeah, it's like the one thing you can kind of give yourself. You are literally paying yourself back uh, a good portion of your payment every month. But that, and then you've got your tax deduction. You have to remember that. So if you do the math of, you know, how the mortgage payment works for tax purposes and for that equity buildup, then go out, extrapolate, you know, three to five years, which I know is tough when you're in your 20s. Because <laughs> I, I remember in my 20s, I'm like, I can't even think the next year. Let alone <laughs> yeah. five, like, I'm going to be 30. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> you know, um, but the, th- the fact is, if you can just, you know, we're all going to be paying this money anyway, just to see what would happen if we just did nothing and just did what did what you were going to do anyway, right? And say your home value doesn't go up at all, you're still going to probably find that it's a pretty shocking amount of money yeah. that you would have at the end of that time frame. Well, and investors out there too, like one thing, that's how I underwrite some deals. Like sometimes like on seller carries, like I did one in North Phoenix. This lady carried two, uh, 2.25% rate for 10 years. 
but we had to overpay a bit for her house, right? So we kind of more or less built in some of that interest into the purchase price. But at a five-year mark, I mean, if you look at just how much is going towards principal, Mm -hmm. you know, it made her happy. You know, she got her number, right? And it it penciled for us because at five years, when you look at an AM schedule, it's like, you know, even if the market doesn't appreciate at all, I mean, then seven and then 10 years, Mm -hmm. I mean, you start seeing that graph, you know, because from my understanding that that principal payment continues to escalate right mm-hmm. so and, and more starts going to principal so yeah and I've, I've heard people too and I, I wanted to hear your opinion on if you think lenders or if like people are always like oh I don't want to refi because then it restarts that am schedule and I'm going to be you know like you see the classic like I see it as an agent right where mm-hmm. people will buy a house and then they'll use it kind of like a credit card right they'll, right. they'll refi and refi and refi and refi right yeah where, it continue- where you're, you're now Basically rolling the cost of that stake into your house. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the cost of your, yeah, your BMW into yeah, your right. house. But it's paid off, guys. Like, don't worry. Yeah. Um, so what, I mean, do you have any data that supports, like, when we go into these, um, you know, high appreciation markets like we just came off of, mm-hmm. right? And everyone was getting you know, their house was worth more and maybe they really liked their house. So they kept refining saying, oh, well, I'm reducing my rate, but I'm also doing a cash out refi instead of uh, just in a rate adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. You don't always have to take out money. You can right. you can just adjust your rate. So yeah. is there any data or anything that you can speak on that that really talks to that? Like, is that, I would imagine, it's got to be more prevalent in those air, in those times where we're just seeing the, especially just an unprecedented amount of appreciation. I mean, it's... You know, the last, since 2020, it has been um, a, a complete anomaly. So I hate to even use any of that, frankly, as any kind of norm or study or whatever, other than the fact that we had such a flood of liquidity and that liquidity came in the form of, you know, people getting literally money directly wired into their accounts. I mean, that is really unusual. I mean, to go back to the stimulus packages that were passed in 2008 under the Obama administration after he was elected, um, right after the, the Great Recession, they went to banks. And so most of that money went there and they kind of trickled down, if you will, eventually making it to our paychecks and gradually raising the the money supply and inflation kind of went up a little bit, but it wasn't like a big deal. But you take all that money and you wire it into somebody's account and they're like, pay your rent with this. Oh, wait, you don't have to pay your rent yeah. because we'll, you know, we won't let them evict you. So go your, yourself a Peloton. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Or buy yourself a car. Yeah. And uh, basically all of that liquidity bled out in all these areas and you could see the stock market, cryptocurrencies, yeah. every that liquidity found a home somewhere, and um, and it found its home in refinancing, um, extra debt. A lot of people um, they're like, I don't have to pay my student loans. I mean, there was all kinds of craziness that went on there. Um, and I think if I were to say there was a, me- a message in there. Probably the worst thing you can do if you get free money is to go into more debt. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. You know, if you have unsecured debt, that's usually um, when inflation hits, it hits your credit card in, um, interest payments, and that's what really starts to cripple people. Um, it might hit cars as well. 
but a lot of people got those cars on low interest rates. But overall, like people started defaulting on their cars a little bit. So it's a lot easier to get rid of your car, let that go, uh, maybe default on a credit card, but do not default on your house. Yeah, don't. Because the one thing that we did learn from 2008 is that you let everything else go, that's fine. Do not default on your home because it locks you out from buying another home with a mortgage for seven years. And what we saw was people defaulting on their mortgages in 2012, and they were locked out until 2018, and home values went up beyond what what they were even able to buy it for right. anymore. So just stay in your home. Like Make your payments. Keep, make that payment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, if anything else, get a roommate. Yeah. Uh, do whatever you can, but I, we just don't really – and I don't really think that you're going to see people – in that position, you see plenty of people that are in the position, but they're not going to go all the way to foreclosure because there are people like you that are like, hey, we'll help you out. And that's what we didn't have in 2008. We did not have the people saying, hey, we can buy your property because. Well, we see the value in the debt. I mean, if you just look at inflation and just, you know, if you look at it from a payment standpoint, too, it's like I, I don't know if we'll ever see rates at that level again. I mean, maybe, right? I, who knows? But I, and, and also to speak on the foreclosure and, and pre-foreclosure thing, like, you know, there's so like I'm, I don't forget the people out there that are like, oh, Luke, we're going to see massive, massive foreclosures. And it's like we don't we didn't forget you all, all of you folks out there. Right. Well, maybe headlines. in commercial you might. Yeah. Commercial. Yeah. That's probably where the opportunity is. But. Uh, we don't see a whole lot of it in residential. But in residential. Or you have a good rate, one of the two, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. You're not underwater. You have choices. You know, um, you're still going to have, in every market, you're going to have somebody who goes all the way. And I'm sure those homes are diamonds. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they're not meth houses or anything like that uh, with toxicity. Um, but the... Overall, when you look at our history of foreclosures, we're so low. We could double or triple, and we'd still be below. But you know, the, where we were, the first thing that the, the headlines are going to come out is, you know, foreclosures triple, right? And then it just creates this so from five to fifteen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what it, triple from what is yeah, the yeah. question? And so we could literally triple and still not be in a crisis. Because we are foreclosing on fewer homes today than we did in literally the 90s when Cactus was Cactus Road was a dirt road. Wow. Okay? Right. <laughs> we didn't even have the 101. It was a bunch of bridges of nowhere. So, I mean, knowing that we had more foreclosures in the mid-90s, as small as we were then, than we do today, as large as we are. Like, Gilbert was farms and flies. That's it. There's a like one-stop sign in the whole city, and we had more foreclosures <laughs> Than, yeah. than we do today, you know. So again, we could triple, and it would be, you know, an opportunity for some people, but it would not be a crisis by any st- standpoint that would cause overall values to decline. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tina. Um, I, I know it's been it's been a great time having you in studio. Oh, and yeah, this was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I was looking forward to this one as soon as we heard that we were getting you on. So it was very excited, and I, I learned a lot. Right so I'm glad we had the chance to get you on here. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm glad you guys had me. And and uh, check out the slides I gave you on the recessions by generation. I think it really does open up your eyes on where all that advice from our grandparents and parents come from. That um, in their 20s and 30s, from 20 to 35. The baby boomers had four recessions. I mean, literally all in that time frame with unemployment that was soaring. They got as high as 10%. 
Their mortgage rates got as high as 18%. So when our parents say, don't get into too much debt, (laughs) try to have a backup plan for, you know, I know you have your dream job, have a backup plan just in case it doesn't work out. It comes from the fact that they are freaking uh, economy ninjas by this point in their lives. And so they are savvy. These, if we have a recession, I don't want anybody to be afraid of recessions. They're just big, humble pies for us. That's where we find out. Like, I just told you, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been paying Acorn TV $5 for four years. <laughs> yeah. I have not watched like one show. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is where you really start looking at your budget, what's, what, what's coming in and coming out, and you become financial ninjas um, yeah. through recessions. So don't be afraid of it. Just hit it head on. I love that, Tina. And and to everyone out there, we appreciate you guys getting to this point in the show. I know it's provided a lot of value. I've learned a ton and uh, it's been great to have Tina here in studio. So thank you guys so much. We'll see you guys on the next episode of Young Money Mindset.